0: Thanks for joining us for the Relate series as we explore the question, Because God is, you are. Doxa Church is a family of missionary servants who make disciples of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. This is our last teaching week in the Relate series. So if you're new, this is your first time, you're coming at a perfect time, the very last week in a 10-part series. Uh, I, because of that, I'm going to spend a good amount of time at the beginning, recapping where we've been, and not just for the newcomers, but because uh, I think, I, well, I think you'll see why. Okay, I think we we need to see how the whole thing flows together. So, uh, as she said, we have been in this relate series, and the vision behind the relate series has been that uh, we relate with the world as a reflection of how we relate with God. Okay. In other words, the way we relate to God, the way we understand God, believe about God, and interact with God dictates and shapes the way in which we relate with the rest of the world. Okay. So uh, throughout this series, we have asked four questions, and those four questions we have said now over and over again, so I'm going to quiz you here in a minute, but they are the way in which we have not only just shaped this series, but uh, the way in which we do theology at DOXA, the way in which we kind of shape our ministry at DOXA, have been through these four questions. So what are the questions? Question one, who is God? What has he done? he done? Who are we and what do we do? Right, good job. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we and what do we do? Now, we have talked about how these flow together, kind of like a baton handoff, right? So we understand who God is, and we kind of hand the baton, and we then we understand um, what God does. We hand the baton into what does that mean about me, and who am I, and then we hand the baton to action. What do I do as a result of it? And there's, there's absolute truth in that, but really more than baton handoff kind of flow, there's really more of a domino effect that um, causes, one answer causes us to ask the next question, and that answer causes us to ask the next question. And really, they cannot be pulled apart or segmented. They depend on one another. So starting at the beginning is really a way to start at the beginning of all of our existence and go, okay, what do we know? What are the foundational truths that govern the universe? As insofar as we can understand them, who is God? And then it, it follows that whoever God is, that God's character flows out into his actions. That we always, always our actions flow out of our identity. And then what God has done, we talked about he has made us and he is remaking us, gives us our identity as uh, human beings created in the image of God and now redeemed and being redeemed, right? So what do we do flows out of this identity, this new identity that we have. Now, you you cannot separate ever what you do from who you are, right? You can't go, well, I know I did that, but that's not really me. No, that's exactly you, right? That's every celebrity apology, right? Oh, I know I said this super racist comment, but that's not who I really am, No, that's who you really are. There is something, now you may be conflicted, you may be struggling, you may be, but it is always a reflection. Your behavior is always a reflection of who you are and what's going on inside of you. Okay? So, flowing these four questions together is really important and it shapes the way we understand the world, the way we understand ourselves, the way we understand each other, and the way we understand the way we're supposed to interact with each other. Now... What's interesting about this is these questions in order shape our Christian theology. But if you ask the questions in reverse order, something kind of amazing happens. We see two things. One, legalism. And two, what we would call license or irreligion or do whatever you want, right? And it follows the exact same pattern. It's remarkable that those two things follow the same pattern. So think about it. Legalism says... I do good things, therefore I'm a good person. God is the kind of person who blesses people who do good things, therefore this is who God is. God is essentially a vending machine God. If I put in my four quarters, I deserve the Cheetos. Okay, We've all been in this situation, it is a deeply theological situation, where you put in the correct amount of money, you press D4 and the Cheetos get stuck. And you feel like, The universe has wronged me in significant ways, and it is a rage-inducing moment, right? It's shoulder into the vending machine, it's you're reaching up, you're shaking it, and there's no shame. People walk by and go, yeah, I mean, he deserves his Cheetos, right? (laughs) So think about this, this is classic legalism that says, what I do, either good or bad, what I do dictates who I am. So if I am good, if I do good, then I am good. And if I am good, then God must bless me. And if God must bless me, that makes God a transactional God by identity. And the reverse, if I do bad, then I am bad, then God ought to curse me. Therefore, God is that same transactional God, just reacting to a different behavior in me. In other words, my behavior controls who God is and what God does and who I am. My behavior is in control of that. Now what's interesting about that is that's not only true for what we would call legalism, which is by the way not the gospel has never been the gospel and will never will be the gospel, but that irreligion or worldly philosophy or license as we might call it follows the same idea. Listen, what I want to do defines who I am, my identity, my behavior, The things I choose to be about, things I choose to do, tell me who I am. And if this is who I am, God ought to bless it and say it is good. And therefore, God is the kind of God that blesses whatever it is I say I want to do. See how it's almost the same thing? That my behavior trumps everything back up the line. My behavior, what I want to do with my life or what I do with my life, how I live my life, tells me who I am, what I can expect God to do, and who God's very nature is. That's a big deal. So it's incredibly important for us to ask the questions in order, to start with the unchangeableness of the divine being and see how that flows into his behavior, how his behavior changes who I am or defines who I am, and then how I live out of that. That's Christian theology. It has always been. So we've applied those four questions to the three persons of the Trinity, right? So if you remember with me, we asked God, who is God the Father? He is Father. What has he done? He has made us his beloved children. Who are we? We are his beloved family. And what do we do? We love each other as family. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the servant king. What has he done? He served us on the cross. Who are we? We are servants of the king and citizens of a kingdom. And what do we do? We serve king and kingdom. The Holy Spirit, starting two weeks ago, we said the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of God's power. What has he done? He has made us and is remaking us as human. Who are we? Pastor Jeff said last week, we are spirit-filled temples that the Holy Spirit has filled us and made us his dwelling place. And now this week, to sum it all up, what do we do? We, empowered by the Holy Spirit, proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. That's that's our so what for this week. We proclaim and we demonstrate the gospel. For that, please turn to John chapter 20, starting in verse 21. This is after the resurrection. Jesus has lived, died, been raised again. Is speaking with his disciples. In verse 21, it says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So uh, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into them, empowering them to be sent as missionaries on behalf of God to, as we will say, demonstrate the gospel and proclaim the gospel. But before we go too far down that road, I want us to stop because um we are faced with a very, very dangerous possibility here that I want to warn us against. See, we say demonstrate and proclaim, or we've said it in a number of different ways over the years. We can say display and declare, show and tell, preach and word and deed, preach and do good, witness and be nice, any other way, we could say these two things that we live out and that we talk about the gospel. And, and we do that for good reason, right? It's, it's all over the Bible, Luke chapter 24, verse 19, Jesus was described as a man who is a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Romans fifteen eighteen. Paul said, for I will not venture to speak of anything except which Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. First John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So if it's all over the Bible, what could possibly be such a grave mistake? I'm glad you asked. Our habit and temptation is to walk through the process and, and walk dutifully through the last nine weeks of who is God and what has he done and who am I? We we listen intently and, and understand God is father and that God has made us his children, that I am a beloved child of God. And we, we, we get it and we're tracking with it and we go, okay, Jesus is the servant king. He's the king that I want. He served us on the cross. Therefore, I'm a servant. The Holy Spirit is manifestation of God. He has made me human and remakes me human. Therefore, I am made in the image of God, made human in his image. I'm a spirit-filled temple. But then every time we get to question four, there is something in us that goes, oh, okay, good. Finally, just the real part. What do I do? Just tell me what to do. I know I'm a, I'm a beloved child of God. I get all I, oh, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Great. Just give me 10 ways to do that. I get it. He's the servant king. That means I'm the servant of the king and kingdom. I get it. I'm supposed to serve those around me. Can you just write a blog? Kind of give me some ways I could just serve. Is there a sign-up sheet? I'd love to just serve. Like, let's just get real here. Let's get down to brass tacks. What do you want me to do? So the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of the power of God. He made us human, remakes us human. We're spirit-filled temples. Got it. Proclaim, demonstrate. How do I do that? Can you give me, like, a script? Do you have a tract? Is there, like, how do I, like, I'm supposed to be nice? Good. I'll demonstrate the kingdom of God. I'll, I'll be nice to my coworker. I'll pick up that staple and be like, for Jesus, you know. And, and uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll see my coworker and, and be looking for opportunities to, uh, to share the gospel. You know, Jim walks into the office. Hey, Jim, nice tie. Speaking of ties, Jesus died on the cross for you. Right, like uh, these are the ways in which we can get to the real stuff. We love a question for faith. There's something extremely tempting about a question for faith because it's practical, it's tangible, it's got handles, it's understandable. Uh, I, you know, the Holy Spirit is a manifestation of the power of God. Ah, uh, okay, great. We're, I'm a spirit-filled temple. Sounds fantastic. Just tell me what to do, please. Just, just give me five steps to being a spirit filled temple. Just give me something I can grab onto. And, and, you know, I think it's a fair question. Why would a desire to know what to do be such a bad thing? Well, because it produces in us shallow, hollow, and indefensible faith. Other than that, it's fine. But proclaim and demonstrate quickly becomes be moral and talk about Jesus in this specific way I'm about to teach you. And the reality is that, that kind of faith just doesn't stand up. It brings us right back to the same problems we had that we talked about a moment ago with asking the questions backwards. When we start, when our faith begins with, just tell me what to do, man. And we try to work backwards from there. We are defining who God is almost as an afterthought to what am I supposed to do? And we see God, we see the Christian life, we see all of it through the lens of what am I supposed to do? So if we don't go through the process, we don't understand it. If we don't understand it, we have nothing to give people except morals and an out clause named Jesus. That's the extent of our evangelism. So most evangelism in our world today starts with some kind of social issue, moral issue, and we work backwards from that at best, back to who God is. But most of our evangelism is, is uh, this is a bad thing. I know that that's a bad thing. You should think that that's a bad thing too. And it doesn't hold up to even a couple of why questions. It's actually an interesting thought, an interesting project Wondering how many why questions can your faith hold up to? How many times could a coworker or friend or family member ask you why before your faith crumbles? If our evangelism starts with some sort of moral issue, usually something hot button like abortion or same-sex marriage or something, we go, well, that's wrong. And our coworker says, well, why? Well, because the Bible says so. All right, well, why do you trust the Bible? Well, because it's the word of God. Okay, well, why do you think that? Well, because my pastor sold me. All right, well, why does he say that? I don't know, just come to church with me. That is the product of a question for faith. When we begin at the end, or even just wrap our lives around simply what is the answer to question four, we remove all of the actual foundational, important, life transforming truths that make question four make sense. It presents ideas about how to live without grounding them in any foundation or reasons. Because here's what happens. If you go, this is wrong, and they say, why? You you think this is wrong because of questions one, two, and three, which they disagree with you about. The foundation of our ethics is our belief in God and the universe God created. So if we start with ethics and we start with behavior, but our foundation is completely different, then we start tracking back to something that we don't agree with and we start diverting our paths more and more as we talk. And what we're left with is something empty, hollow, and shall. Now, to be fair, everyone does this, and sometimes, especially non-Christians who don't ask themselves why questions any more than we do, and maybe don't want to because there's not a lot of great answers behind all of that, but that's the difference. We have great answers. We have the story of a God who loves us and adopted us as his children, made us his own, filled us with his spirit, died for us. We have a, a universe-orienting story that is the foundation of these final question four answers that go, yes, and we do this or don't do that. But it's not because God at random kind of looked down on earth and went, okay, don't do that. Don't do that. You can do a little bit of that. Don't do that. You like that way too much. Don't be doing that. That's not how it was built. But when evangelism starts with question four and maybe gets just hops to question one, then we go, well, why is this true? Because God but isn't rooted in our own hearts and in our own minds and the foundational understanding of what we believe about the universe, we're not offering anything with any power. We're not offering anything that's interesting or compelling in any way. The attitude that many of us have implicitly or explicitly is, yeah, 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 just tell me what to do, man. You do your theology thing all week and you just show up and deliver me the last five minutes of your sermon. Just tell me what to do. And I wonder how that would go in your marriage. Babe, I feel like we're not connecting anymore. I feel like there's something between us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just tell me what to do. How would that go in any re- relationship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just tell me what to do. I, I don't need the backstory. I don't need to know why you feel that way. I don't need to know what I've been doing. Just tell me how to fix it, and I'll fix it. Don't sweat it. I, I, I'm not asking how would that work in your marriage rhetorically. I've done it not well. And yet, this is often how we proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. Leslie Newbegin theologian and missiologist said in gospel in a pluralist society, which is a fantastic book says there has been a long tradition, which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It has been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification. And yet it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? Who could be silent about such a fact? Well... People who don't believe it, or don't care about it, or haven't experienced the power of it. That's who. And it's not the fault of the gospel. It's probably because they have learned the story backwards. And there's nothing compelling about that story. There's something that offers us the illusion of control and so maybe there's something interesting about it at that sense. It gives us a sense that we're in charge. If it all starts with my behavior and that defines who I am and that defines what I get from God and that defines who God is, then yeah, that gives me a sense of control and I could see how that could be interesting to some of us at certain points of our life. But at the end of the day, it's bankrupt of power. It's bankrupt of the ability to transform and it is not at any level a winsome story. So it's no wonder none of us talk about it but from the very beginning this has not been God's plan for us to proclaim and demonstrate is never been God's plan for us to simply get to question four and learn methods or scripts on how to talk about it that's never been it God has entered into creation, he has entered into history over and over and over and over to be with his people, to change his people, to shape his people, to make his people into the kinds of people that would proclaim and demonstrate naturally out of their new identity. But it forces us to start at the beginning of who is God and wrestle with that over and over and over. And what has he done for me, in me, over and over and over? And who does that make me? What am I now? Over and over and over so that all of that process shapes us into the kind of person that would proclaim and demonstrate. That's the vision. And we know it because of John 20. Go back to John 20. Jesus says two things here. One, as the Father has sent me, as the Father, in the same way that the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And secondly, receive the Holy Spirit. So this begs two questions for us. One, what is the Holy Spirit doing? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Jesus gives us this commission and then says, well, before you go, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, How did the Father send the Son? Those are our two questions. Last week, two weeks ago, we answered the question, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? We looked in John 15, 16, and 17, and we saw a couple things. That the big picture was... That the Holy Spirit made us human, God breathed life into us, and that the work of the Holy Spirit ever since Genesis 3, ever since sin entered the world, the work of the Holy Spirit was to convict us, shape us, move us, to remake us human, to return us back to God's Genesis 1 and 2 vision, right? That was the big meta version. Specifically in John 15, 16, 17, we saw that the Spirit did three things, kind of three categories of things. One, he reminded us of Jesus' words, our mind. Two, he testified to our hearts about the truthfulness of who Jesus is, heart. And three, he convicted and guided us in our actions. So the Spirit, using the mind to, remind, to bring back to mind the words of Jesus, by shaping the heart, by testifying us to his truthfulness, and by shaping our actions and, and the outworking of those things, guides and convicts us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit is always doing. So when Jesus commissions the disciples and by extension commissions us to be sent as he was sent and then says, wait, 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 you need the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, here's what's going down. I am remaking you through the power of the Holy Spirit To guide, to convict, to remind, to testify, to shape us back into those kinds of people that he intended for us to be. Now, you need that as you are sent because that's the mechanism for the sending. That's the mechanism. That's how we are shaped into the kinds of people. In other words, the Holy Spirit wasn't given to the disciples to teach them skills or scripts for how to share the gospel. Jesus gave the disciples the Holy Spirit to make them into the kinds of people that their life reflected the gospel and their words were gospel-saturated because that's who they were. You don't get that if you skip to question four and center your life on question four and memorize a bunch of hows. How do I love? How do I serve? How do I proclaim and demonstrate? You'll never get that. And and if we're honest, we're doing something we would never do in any other part of our lives, right? We would never allow someone to short circuit the process and just do question four and memorize a series of things and then be able to be something or do something. You would never hire a programmer that didn't actually learn programming but read programming for dummies and could regurgitate the five main points. You would never work for a CEO who had only gone through Financial Peace University. You would never go back to a doctor whose only credentials were loving that show ER. You would never do it. Evangelism methods like these are the I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express version of Christianity. You've got some sound bites, you've got some ideas, but it's not in you. It hasn't been shaped into you, pushed into you by repetition, by the power of the spirit in you. It's not there. And so you mimic it. You act it out as if it were a play. And it's shallow and it's hollow and it's ineffective for you and for your neighbor. Nobody, nowhere, nowhere in the Bible do you see this kind of formation or training. The Bible describes a worship in its broadest form, worship. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but I I, want to stop us here because I think probably, maybe there are some of you who are going, yeah, this is me. I am totally a question for person. I just want to know what what I need to do. And you're right. I got to do better at that. I got to do better at not doing that. No. Do you hear yourself? Here's what you just said. Yeah, I'm a total question four person. You know what I got to do? I got to do better at question four because I'm just too much at question four and all I'm thinking about is question four. So I got to question four myself out of this question four problem. (laughs) Wrong. That, That is the false thinking that got you in this problem to begin with. You don't need to do more. You need to be different. And that's a totally different conversation and a completely different process. So if your reaction to this, the conviction is, yeah, I gotta do better, stop, rest, repent of starting at question four, and go back to question one and go, wait a second, if I'm stuck over there, over and over in this cycle, of just tell me what to do, what does that mean I actually believe about God? Because if I'm majoring here and I'm I'm being logical here and I think, well, what I do is what matters then what I do defines who I am and what I am dictates God's behavior and dictating God's behavior means that God is the certain kind of God who can be dictated by my behavior. Is that what I believe? Is that what I think is true about God? Is that what God has revealed about God's self? So the way out of question four mire is not more question four. It's repenting of it, taking a deep breath, and starting back at question one, which is, I think, the answer to our second question is, how had the Father sent the Son? How did the Father send the Son? There's a moment in Matthew chapter 22... Where a man, uh, a lawyer, walks up to Jesus and says, "What's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing in the Old Testament?" And you remember Jesus's answer. He says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." That's the question. That's the answer to the question. What is the most important thing? And I, and you know what I for a long time, really struggled with that because it seems impossible to command someone to love, right? Like, how do you command someone to love you? That seems to undercut the very idea. I mean, there would be a lot less desperate single men in this room if you could just command someone to love you, right? But you can't. So I've always kind of wondered, like, how how does that work? Why would that be the greatest commandment? And I remember being in Exodus chapter 20, reading the Ten Commandments, and, and having something stand out to me that made sense of the whole thing, and I think makes sense for us this morning. In the sentence, right before God gives the most iconic set of laws in all of human history, do you know what God says to his people right before the Ten Commandments? Like the sentence before I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the houses of slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Now, you are my people because I did that. I saved you. You are my saved ones. You are my chosen ones. And now, Ten Commandments. Do you you see how different Ten Commandments look when you separate from them the first three questions and just make it about that and throw it on a courthouse wall? You lose all the context for it, all the reason why, all of it. And it just becomes laws you can look at and go, no, I disagree with that. Because there's no basis for it. But God gave us the basis for it by going, I am the Lord your God. That's who I am. I brought you out of slavery and out of uh, out of Egypt. Now the house of slavery. That's what I've done. Now you are my people who have been saved. And now here's what I call you to do. That's a worldview. That's a foundation. That's a where. If someone goes, why do you you know honor your father and mother? Because I have a God who is the Lord, my God. And you know what he did? He saved me out of slavery. He made me his own. He demonstrated his great power and his great love for me. And so you know what? I trust that God, that honoring my father and mother is the right thing to do because it's rooted in what I know about God and what I've seen him do and what that makes me. And now this is obvious to me. So for Israel they heard the 10 commandments in the context of Exodus and the Egyptian escape. Jesus is our Egyptian escape. The cross is our Red Sea. We as Christians understand question four in light of what Christ has done for us. So we here proclaim and demonstrate and go, okay, I'm a robot, I just do what I'm told. Give me the script, I'll do it. No, we go, I serve a God who made me and shaped me and breathed life into me. I serve a God who s- saved me by his own death, who pursued me, who died a criminal's death on my behalf. I serve a God who has made me a new creation. So, yeah, I'm doing these things because of that. So how did God send, how did the Father send the Son? What did Jesus do? What do we see in him as our evangelism example? Over and over and over, he preached the gospel. He described the kingdom. He illustrated what it was like in a million different ways so that we could grab onto it. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He was resurrected. So we see that power. That's our escape from Egypt and we rehearse it over and over and over and remind ourselves over and over and over so that question four makes sense because we know the answers to question one, two, and three and we don't just know it but we know it and so we know it so it comes out of us i mean do you ever wonder why we do our liturgy the same every week our order of service on, in a gathering do you know why we do that it's not because we're massively uncreative that's a separate issue It's because we want to rehearse the true story of the world over and over and over. We preach the gospel in every message, even messages that aren't specifically in a series about the Trinitarian identity and the gospel, all that. We preach the gospel week after week after week so that what the so what is at the end of the sermon is always rooted in who is God, what has he done, who am I now, so here's what we do. And rather than just go, hey guys, go do this this week, try hard, work hard, do these good things. We go, no, we believe in a crazy good God who made us, who saved us, who shaped us, who's remade us into a new thing. And yes, we walk in things and yes, we do things. And yes, there's an ethical code and moral, all that. Yes, but it's not separate from. It is a powerful work of Satan to separate what we do from who we are. And that separation sucks all of the power out of what we do. Because we do it out of a place of blind obedience. We do it out of a place of ignorance. We just do things. And they're not an expression of who we are. They're not an expression of what we know. And they're not an expression of what we believe. What's true about the world and true about God. So we gather and we rehearse this gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We preach the gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We take communion to remember the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Because the moment you walk out the door, you are told a different story over and over and over and over and over and over and over in a million, million ways. You're told it in service on your smartphone. You're told it by Satan in service. You're, you're told it by your flesh. Everything is working against it. It's why Jesus, if you read through Matthew, it's just parable after parable after parable. I want you to see it. I want you to get it over. All, I'll turn it this way. I'll turn it that way. I hope you can grab it. One of these perspectives can show you what it is so you can grab it and go, yes, I know who God is. I know what he's done. I know who I am. And yeah, now it all makes way more sense to go do. James K.A. Smith, one of my favorite writers living says this in the benediction of his book called you are what you love he says this worship ends with sending we are gathered by the grace of our recreating god in order to become the image bearers he created us to be precisely so that we can be sent into his world as ambassadors of reconciliation the God who is love reorders our loves, bending our deepest desires back towards Himself so that we might rightly love our neighbor for His sake. The Spirit rehabituates our loves not merely for the sake of renovation, but so that we can love even our enemies. This is what we were made for to love what God loves. Our telos, our purpose, brings us back to our beginning, and we were made to be sent. So what do I do? What is the answer to question four? And how can I answer it in a way that isn't fake, that isn't disconnected? Well, you can come back next week and join us in our gathering again to sing songs about who God is and what he's done, to hear a message about who God is and what he's done, To hear about who you are in light of who he is and what he's done. To take communion week after week after week to rehearse over and over and over this true story of the world, all of which makes sense of the day-to-day, rubber-hits-the-road decisions that we have to make. We're gonna tell it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Because there's nothing truer There's nothing better. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing else that can give us hope for a future. And what we believe is that by rehearsing that story over and over, the Holy Spirit shapes us into the kinds of people that live out that creation, fall, redemption, restoration story in everyday stuff of life that the Holy Spirit shapes us and makes us into the kinds of people that speak the gospel in everything that we say, not as a message packaged and, and sold, but as a reflection of what we know and believe and see in the world. That there's nothing more powerful than you being able to articulate, gosh, I was not made, for, I was made for something better, but you know, I am always tempted and deeply, torn by sin but you know what jesus is my savior and he gives me grace so that i can grow and be nearer to him and more like him that's all you got to do there's there's no sense that preaching the gospel is or demonstrating the gospel is you always doing it right that's not the expectation that's quarter four thinking question four thinking Gospel thinking is going like, this is what I was made for. This is what's broken in me. This is what Jesus has done for me. And here's how I'm growing. And being able to say that and being able to live that so people can see glimpses of what you were made to be. But they see the reality of sins hold on you. They see the hope of grace and they see progress in you as the spirit is remaking you. That's, that's all. That's demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We ask, Lord, that you would constantly remind us to go back to question one, to root everything we know and love in the truth about who you are and what you've done. Lord, don't let us short circuit the process by simply focusing on question four and what do I do and just give me the facts and just tell me what to do, that that undermines the relationship and undermines the power and undermines all of it. Lord, you made us to know you, to know your story, to know ourselves and to live out of that. Spirit, please continue to do that work in us as a church, as individuals, as families. We love you. Jesus name. Amen.